0: The Global Road Safety Podcast is sponsored by Smith System. Celebrating 70 years of impacting road safety around the world. Find us at drivedifferent.com. Smith System, drive different, save lives. With safer vehicle design, driver assistance technology, and mountains of data available from monitoring devices, why is it that vehicle crashes and deaths continue to rise? According to the World Health Organization, on-road injuries are among the leading causes of death worldwide, especially in low-income countries. With more deaths, more injuries, and billions of dollars in annual costs, what can drivers and the companies that hire them do to keep our roads safer? Welcome to the Global Road Safety Podcast. I'm Tony Douglas. It's hard to believe, given decades of research, public awareness and marketing, that impaired driving continues to account for a staggering number of fatal crashes around the world. While difficult to measure the collective impacts of alcohol, legalized and illicit drugs and prescription drugs, there's universal agreement that 45 to 50% of all fatal crashes involve a driver under the influence of one or more substances. Given the pace at which cannabis legalization and use is growing, the timing seemed right to get an update on current research and trends regarding impaired driving. Recently, I was privileged to interview Dr. Timothy Brown, Research Scientist and Director of Drugged Driving Research at the University of Iowa College of Engineering. Dr. Brown has been researching the effects of drugs on driving for more than two decades and is currently a leading researcher on the effects of cannabis on driving performance. Dr. Brown is a member of the National Academies of Sciences Research Board on Impairment in Transportation and is a member of the International Council on Alcohol, Drugs, and Traffic Safety. I hope you find the conversation enlightening and helpful. Let's get to it. I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Timothy Brown to the podcast audience. Welcome, sir.
1: Thanks, Tony. It's a pleasure to be with you today.
0: Dr. Brown, you were kind enough to accept my connection request on LinkedIn back in May, and we had a follow-up conversation in June, which was an eye-opener for me regarding the focus and nature of your research. It was clear to me that your work would be of great interest to everyone concerned about road safety. Perhaps we could begin with you sharing a bit about your background and how you came to be involved in drugged driving research.
1: Sure. It's a, it's an interesting story. Uh, my involvement in this research actually started when I was a grad student at the University of Iowa's or Iowa Driving Simulator. We had a project there where we were looking at first generation versus second generation antihistamines. And so way back in the day, one of the concerns was that a lot of the antihistamines that people took for seasonal allergies, which I've been suffering here the last number of weeks, resulted in drowsiness um, and people just kind of feeling uh, lethargic. And so the newer generation of antihistamines uh, were designed to not cross the blood-brain barrier and therefore were believed to cause less impairing effects that might influence driving. And so we had done a study uh, looking at uh, effects of phenidine versus diphenhydramine. So Basically, that's Allegra versus uh, Benadryl. Uh, and so that also involved alcohol as a, as a control. And so what we were looking at is, do we see the same sort of effects on individuals who have taken Allegra versus those that have taken Benadryl? And so when we looked at that, you know, we saw a clear difference where we observed less impairment to driving and people under the influence of, after having taken Allegra, uh, drove much more like the placebo group that hadn't taken a drug at all. And so that was uh, that was groundbreaking research back in the 90s, uh, and then you know I've been doing drug impaired research on and off. You know my background is in human factors research, uh, particularly related to driving. You know, we've had projects that have come to us over the years where people have got a question about this drug or that drug. You know how does alcohol impair driving? Uh, and so a lot of general impairment work as well, uh, whether it's distraction or drowsiness. But recently, with the changes in the laws around the country, there's been an increased focus on how different drugs impact driving performance to get a better understanding of you know, what do we know? What don't we know and what answers can we provide that will guide public policy in terms of, you know, what does it safe for people to drive uh, after taking a substance and what is it not now that some of those substances are legal in different states around the country. And so we've been uh, pushing this over the last few years. And I lead the, I now I'm the director of the drug driving research group here at the University of Iowa's national advanced driving simulator. And our focus has been on trying to answer some of those questions.
0: Yeah. So specifically, as as we think about uh, marijuana or, or cannabis uh, legalization, seems to be increasing. You know, at a at a very rapid pace, with eighteen or more states now where it's fully legalized, and most of the other states uh, observing significantly reduced restrictions and penalties. It seems it won't be long until marijuana is much like alcohol in terms of national legalization and acceptance. What do you think, based on your research, the legislative response should be, or what have you learned from your research in terms of the use of cannabis in driving?
1: I think that's a good question, and it's probably the the most important thing that we hear questions on is just what is the impact on, on public safety? And so we know that, uh, as you indicated, cannabis is increasingly being decriminalized at the state level, although it still remains illegal at the federal level. The feds have largely taken a hands-off approach uh, and are not really getting engaged in states where they've decriminalized it within their legal framework for for drug distribution. And so when we look at it, you know, one of the big questions that always pops up is now that you can't just rely on the fact that somebody tests positive for cannabis in those states to indicate that they're impaired. And so that was kind of the de facto when it was illegal, if you were driving and it was in your system, then you were driving under the influence, and things naturally flowed from there without a lot of thought that had to follow. The challenge moving forward, as states continue to legalize cannabis, and and if the federal government eventually decriminalizes it across the U.S., you know, it, it raises that whole question about how do we differentiate somebody who is THC positive and is operating a vehicle versus somebody who is acutely impaired after having used cannabis. It's an important distinction because at the end of the day, our goal from a traffic safety standpoint is we want to keep people who are a danger themselves or others from driving on the road network. Um, and so how do we define that? And so you know, states have looked at things like do we set a, a limit of five nanograms per milliliter or 10 nanograms per milliliter of cannabis or THC in the system? and define that as a limit similar to the you know the 0.08. Everyone wants that that alcohol. Limit. It's like 0.08 is illegal in 49 out of 50 states. you know it's 0.05 in, in Utah. but you know having a hard number where we can just say, at this level, you know, you're impaired and, and below this level, you're fine. Um, but it's more complicated with cannabis than it is with, with alcohol. And even though there's variability for individuals with alcohol in terms of how impaired they get at a a given level, the thresholds are generally accepted in terms of a legal standpoint. When we look at cannabis, the challenge becomes one of, because it stores in the fat, uh, it, it can live in your body for, for quite a while after you've used it and it will continue to leach out. And so you'll have levels of THC in your system, even... You know days weeks after you've used particularly if you were a heavier user or a daily user and you've stopped using it can continue for a while after you've after you've used i think one of the interesting things when we look at our research is you know we'll have people that will be in for a study visit and when they come in the next time they still have uh levels of thc that might be above five nanograms per milliliter even though based on their self-reports it may have been days since they used and so The challenge you wind up with is, you know, how do we define this? How do we define a number that's that's fair and an accurate representation of whether or not somebody's impaired? And that's what we hear from legislators that they want to know is, how do we ensure that we've got a system that'll work where we don't punish people who are not impaired, but that we can capture everybody that is impaired? And that's kind of the thousand-dollar question on the cannabis side. And when we look at cannabis use in general, what we, do, what we do note is that we do see changes in driving behavior uh, or performance. We see uh, increased variability in lane keeping, which is consistent with what we see with other drugs that impair driving, uh, particularly alcohol, uh, where that's been tied to an increased crash risk. And so the question really comes down to how do we define a threshold? What should that threshold be based on? And then ultimately, you know, as with other drugs, how do we provide guidance uh, to individuals about, you know, when is it safe to drive after using cannabis? Those are some of the questions that we struggle with, still trying to get answers to a lot of them. And so we'll continue to, to work in that area to see what we can come up with. There is a lot of exciting work that's being done, trying to come up with methods for identifying when somebody's impaired, trying to correlate outcomes of tests, or, you know, are there metabolites that, that, that tie to of cannabis that tie to particular levels of changes in driving performance that we could use as a, a threshold. And so some ideas on using kind of big data approaches to to try and tie those together and come up with, with something that, that maybe isn't as straightforward as a, a 0.08 THC, but uh, allows you to piece together and say, if you've got this combination of things, this is indicative of having used cannabis and being impaired at the time you're operating the vehicle.
0: So maybe to put you on the spot just a little bit here, and of course, that's not my intent with this question, but I have personally so very little knowledge around marijuana and marijuana use of course for decades now there's been this negative social stigma associated with drinking and driving it's it's become societally very unaccepted and of course there are stiff legal consequences extensive public service campaigns you know and both have been effective in reducing drinking and driving behaviors do you do you think that, as we consider cannabis, there is that kind of risk there to road safety? Is it a risk that is that is on par with alcohol use and alcohol abuse, ultimately?
1: I think that's a fair question. And I think the, the answer is going to be more complex than, than your listeners may want to hear. But I think one difference, as we look at it, and you and I have talked about this in the past, is, you know, Growing up, you know, it wasn't uncommon to go to a family get together, go to the park and there'd be beer in the cooler uh, and everyone would drink up until the time they left and then get behind the wheel of the car. And it was just kind of, that was the way life was back then. And as you alluded to, there was a change over time where it became societally unacceptable to do that. And so, people adapted. I think part of it was a fact that I don't think a lot of people recognized the, the risk they were taking. And so there's was, there was an education piece to it. Um, and I think part of that was that there was a lot of work done to detail out how at these different levels of intoxication, what the risk was in, in terms of being involved in a crash or a fatal crash. I think you know, being able to educate people about that is important. I think on the, on the cannabis side, a lot of that research that it ties things to what that overall risk is less clear. We don't have necessarily great data sources. You know, we're trying to collect data in, in different places where it's been legalized. You know, Washington and Colorado have done a great job of trying to collect data, but there's a lot of confounding variables in there. And so trying to tease them out, your listeners may be familiar with the fatality analysis reporting system, um, which you know, which provides data on all the fatal crashes in the US. But that was never really designed. Although there's areas to capture uh, drugs that were in the system, uh, there were a lot of inconsistencies in that data in terms of how you captured that, what drugs went in there, what did not, and so if somebody had more than three drugs in their system, how you know how did you choose which ones were in there? And so there's uh, you know they're they're doing some revision to that to allow us to have better data as we move forward. But looking back, it's just hard to to go back and and try and tease things out of that uh, out of that data. And one of the additional struggles on the cannabis side is, you know, I think a great many of the users don't necessarily perceive that there's a increased risk after having used cannabis. And so, you know, I'm working on a poster for the Association for the Advancement of Automotive Medicine, where we're going to present on our findings from a survey of cannabis users in Iowa and looking at what their perceptions are of, you know, what is the risk of using cannabis? Are you willing to drive within two hours after using cannabis? It's it's a follow-up to a survey that we did with our colleagues in Colorado, uh, and I'll, I'll reference the Colorado data for right now, since the uh, data from Iowa is not yet published. Uh, but when we look at the the Colorado data, is you know we saw a great many of these individuals are willing to drive within two hours after having used cannabis, and you know a significant portion of them, particularly the the more frequent users, don't believe that there's a there's an impact on their driving, and so. And when we look at it, the, the interesting thing is there's also this connection between you know those that are, are most willing to drive within two hours of using cannabis are also those that believe it is least likely to impact them in terms of their performance. And so one of the questions you don't know is perhaps, for whatever reason, with those that are most willing to drive, they actually may or may not have as much impairment to their driving. We don't know. And so that's a question to be looked at, but it is concerning that when we look at our data from Doing driving simulation, we do see impairment effects in terms of, you know, again, our, one of the primary measures we use is variability in lane keeping. And you know, it's kind of easy thing to think about is if you think about it from an alcohol, it's, it's, it's that driver who's weaving in their lane back and forth. And so increasing levels of that indicate increasing weaving in the lane. And so one of the struggles obviously is trying to understand how does this tie to crashes at the end of the day? Because there isn't a lot that ties it there's concern because what we see is similar to alcohol, we see increases in variability in lane keeping and ability to precisely control the vehicle. But what we do see is, is that perhaps our drivers who operate their vehicles, at least when they're driving the simulator, do seem to be somewhat cognizant that maybe they aren't performing as well. You know, We see, see a consistent picture that they, they seem to try to adapt their driving to give themselves more time to respond uh, driving a little bit slower when they're under the influence of cannabis, allowing themselves you know more space to respond if something bad happens in the environment, which is not behavior we see with uh, individuals who are under the, under the influence of alcohol. And so, you know, it's a complex question. I have concerns. The question is where, at the end of the day, is that line between safe operation and unsafe operation? You know, and then. On the alcohol side, we got an easy number. You know, societally, we've accepted that you know if you're above .08, in most states we're going to say it's illegal for you to drive. Um, If you're below, you're fine, except in Utah where where they've lowered it to .05. And even with alcohol, you know, there's a trade-off there, right? We know that in laboratory studies, you know, you can see you can see impairment down to .02, right? So we can we can see subtle changes in 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 performance, even related to driving, as low as .02 uh, percent BAC. And you know NTSB has recommended that the legal limit should be 0.05, which is where you see, start seeing some of the more, more risk is, is probably a better way of saying it. But on the flip side, we also know that a lot of the crashes that occur on the alcohol side occur with people that are well above 0.10, um, and they're, they're still driving. And so yeah, where, where to focus on that side becomes a, a challenge. On the cannabis side, we just really need some more data to better define it, because we do know that people are are using cannabis and then getting behind their wheel Uh, in that time period immediately after and even though they may show signs that they're trying to adjust their performance the extent to which that adjustment is enough to avoid being at risk in a in a sudden emerging event is unclear
0: so it's safe to say it's it's early days in knowing how this is all going to ultimately shake out from an enforcement standpoint and and uh, how we're going to be thinking about cannabis use down the road
1: it is, and as, as you kind of indicate, there's a lot a lot that happens from a societal standpoint that drives what happens from a public policy standpoint. I think the best part of it is, you know, is, is you know when we recruit subjects to be in our studies, I think they, you know the, the general consensus is that everybody wants to better understand where the risk points are at because, you know, although I've had a lot of drivers or subjects that have come in who've who've said they want to demonstrate that they can safely drive after having used cannabis. Uh, they also have indicated that they, you know, they want to know the answer because they want to be safe when operating operating the vehicle. And so I think that's a, I think it's a good point. I think everyone wants to have the same thing, which is a structure that keeps unsafe behavior off the road, uh, but doesn't criminalize uh, people who are behaving in a way that doesn't add risk.
0: So, I wonder, are you seeing research in other places around the world? around uh, cannabis use. I'm I'm curious if you've got counterparts as our audience has a global focus. Are you seeing counterparts doing research very similar to what you're doing?
1: There's a lot of research uh, around the world, uh, not just on cannabis. Uh, You know, we've got colleagues that we work with who are, are, for example, in Australia, who are doing work on methamphetamines and driving. And so that's another drug that poses a challenge. Um, There's a lot of work being done on even prescription medications around the world, trying to better understand you know, what are the impacts of, of different drugs that people are taking for medical reasons but yeah there, there's a lot of there's a lot of research uh being done you know, the netherlands are an area where there's a lot of work on drug impairment in general even within the u.s i've got colleagues in colorado and and california who are are working this in this area and the challenge is that uh, what we really need is, is more people doing work because there's a lot of questions and and uh limited Resources to try to, to really dig into them. So
0: it it was interesting as we let off this episode. You were talking about allergy medications. Um, has your research contemplated either other medical conditions or perhaps any other drugs other than the allergy medications that you referenced and uh, and cannabis?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. You know, we've done we've done some work on. number of different drugs you know we've done some work with opioids trying to look at kind of an acute use uh those become a a more complex thing you know looking at both the you know what is the impact of a of a one-time use versus somebody who's using uh to manage chronic pain we've done some other work looking at at medications that also have sedative effects um we've looked at stimulants you know uh, things that maybe are used for for example like treating uh conditions like adhd um and so there's a lot of drugs out there. Um, the challenge becomes, how do you dig into them, and at what point should we be concerned? Because there's a lot of questions, you know, in the U.S market, you, know, at what point does a drug require a driving study from the FDA for prior to approval? You know, and, and largely what they're looking at is sedative effects. So things that, are, that tend to cause drowsiness uh, will often trigger it. But it's not a uniform requirement that every drug that goes into into the market in the US has has gone through and, and looked at whether or not it's likely to cause impairment. And, and even if the even if a requirement came into place today, there are so many drugs available. Going back and retroactively saying, you know, we need to evaluate every drug to see what the what the potential effects are is a challenge. I think one of the one of the things that as we look at that, that becomes even more challenging is that. Just as we talked about cannabis, where post-drive assessment or while they're driving, we see some awareness and some some mitigation effects. That's not that's not true across the board. You know, when we look at drugs, people may not be aware or perceive that they've they've got a negative performance or impact on their driving. You know, we've done some stuff over the years, and you know, you listen into subjects as they're driving, and I, I recollect one subject, uh, one person we had in driving in the simulator and you're observing it and they are confidently talking about how well they're driving as you're watching them weave in another lane and they just are unaware of the fact that they are impaired. They think that they've, you know, they've got it and, and they, they express a level of confidence and obviously that's not everyone, wasn't everyone that we observed with that drug, but it does give cause for concern. You know, a lot of the stuff we rely on, if we rely on self-report, you know, that, you know, that it that it impacts you, you know, if, as we look at side effects for drugs, if people don't report that they had issues with driving, you know, where does that leave us in terms of, uh, being able to identify that as a potential side effect that might require more, more study. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity out there to, to better assess not only what drugs might cause impairment, to, but to kind of document, um, what drugs might avoid it. And so, for example, I referenced a study where we looked at Allegra versus Benadryl. and that real, that study really focused on trying to demonstrate that Allegra didn't have the same impairing effects that Benadryl did in terms of in terms of driving safety. And so I think at the end of the day, when we try to look at it, you know, there may be more opportunities with some of the new drug classes uh, or the new drugs and classes to actually try to demonstrate, you know, this drug has less impairing effect than another rather than a retrospective look back at all the drugs that are on the market. One of the challenges is also when we think about prescription medications, you know, people often believe that if their doctor prescribes it to them, that it's it's safe for them to operate the vehicle. They kind of ignore the, a couple of the warnings that you might see, you know, the warning which says don't operate heavy equipment. Oh, my car is not a piece of heavy equipment. Oh, my car is pretty heavy. And uh, I think the intent there is for you to to avoid doing that, at least until you understand what the effects of the drug are in you, and that's the other one, which is you know, you know, don't drive until you understand how this drug affects you. And so, that's a challenge for people for people in a lot of the parts of the parts of the country and, and around the world. I've got a 20-minute drive into the office every day. If I couldn't drive, it would complicate uh, my life because it's a, you know it's 15 miles, 20 minutes in my car. You know, you know walking to work is not really a great option there. Uh, I'd get home. I get to the office. And it would be time to turn around and head home. Unlike areas where you've got a mass transit system that can move you around efficiently and you don't have to worry about operating a vehicle,, uh, there's a lot of parts of the the world where using a vehicle is critical uh, to being able to have a good quality of life. you know get your doctor's appointment, uh, go see friends and family, get your job are all things that are impacted if you can't use a, operate a motor vehicle.
0: Yes, yeah, so uh, that's interesting and it and it leads me to uh, a, a question for you around. Uh, the recent accident trends and statistics, which are pointing to distractions and fatigue and speed as kind of the trio of deadly behaviors that that are pushing crash statistics in the wrong direction, are we missing an important factor here by not identifying impaired driving as a uh, a significant contributor to the the trends that we're seeing?
1: I think it's a good question. Uh, you know. Obviously, one of the struggles, as I indicated earlier, with with drug driving is that there's not a there's not a great data set on the far side to this point that's been able to help us identify that. And a lot of that is generated based on fatal crashes, and so getting a better understanding of that is important. I think there's a there's an ongoing research project that's been put on by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, uh, where they collected data from trauma centers uh, scattered around the country. And looking at the prevalence of drugs in the system for individuals who arrive at those trauma centers after motor vehicle crashes and then comparing that uh, the the nice thing is they've got an interesting an interesting uh, comparison based based on the timing they've got pre-pandemic and then during the pandemic and so one of the concerning things is that you know and they presented some of these results at uh, a few of their webinars is that during the pandemic even though vehicle miles traveled were down there are more drugs in the system of people that wound up in the trauma centers during the pandemic than before and so it raises interesting questions about you know what's going on there and again you know as you reference speed uh that was one of the things that you know i think has been reported is that when the roads were emptier there were a lot a lot of higher speed crashes that were going on because people had the freedom to drive faster because they weren't encumbered by traffic surrounding them and so I do think that drug driving is a factor that needs to be in there. NHTSA has identified it as a, as a priority. DOT had brought it up across modes uh, as, as a challenge, not just for you know, operating a car, but also for, for rail, for transit, for aviation. And so it is a challenge, and not just because we're seeing decriminalization, but because we're seeing, you know, we're seeing more individuals taking more drugs that, that potentially interact with each other. Uh, and it's important to keep in mind when we look at some of this data that we often don't see individuals that have just one drug in their system. You know, there's often a combination of them. And that's even more of a challenge to understand how that works together. Uh, some of them, you know, there's some clear indications where you, know, you get the one that don't use this with that, but others are unique combinations. And you may be one of a handful of people or a couple dozen people that maybe are using uh the combination of drugs to treat different different conditions and so there may not be a lot of data that helps inform those things and i think NHTSA's focus on it will help us moving forward but again we need we need better data you know we used to have the the road survey uh where they would do random stops around the country to, to just look at you know the prevalence of people operating vehicles uh, under the influence both day and night um, the last one was, I think, was in 2013, 2014, and and they had been every seven years. But uh, I don't think there was funding authorized for the last round of it. And so the question is, at what point, you know, can we get more data that gives us a a, a better snapshot of what's going on? Things like the prevalence study uh, in the ERs provide some support for that, but it's not a it's not a replacement for broader surveillance to understand what the problem is. If we can't document what the problem is, then people believe there's not a problem. Yeah. That's the challenge. You know, Distraction wasn't an issue until we started getting stats that showed that there were concerns, that there was you know, an, an increase in folks who were using their cell phones and getting involved in crashes. So I think at the end of the day, and I keep using that phrase a lot, uh, the end of the day is, a, is one of my go-tos, but what we really need is a concerted focus on how do we answer these questions, both from a, what is the problem and then how do we address it uh, in terms of both education, outreach, and enforcement? It, it's got to be all of them because at, at this point, there's not enough data available that allows us to inform both policy and to educate the broader community who use these drugs about when it's safe to use them and when it's not.
0: Yeah, it's a, um, it, it must be from your standpoint, kind of a, a, a daunting task to look at it from a really high level and uh, how many different... How many different variables there are and how much opportunity there is to learn and, and impact safety based on all of these different substances, be, be they prescription or recreational. Tim, in your 25 years of driving research, you know, have you got any specific anecdotes or learnings that you'd like to share with our audience or perhaps something I should have asked you? Uh, that would be important in the context of road safety. Anything else you'd like to say?
1: There's a lot of lessons learned over over the years. I think the the one thing that it's important for everybody to keep in mind is technology keeps advancing, but it doesn't advance as fast as we'd like. When I got into this back as a grad student, you know, we were looking at forward crash warning systems, and you know. You know back in the 90s you just you just knew that this was going to be a solution that was going to prevent this big segment of crashes by alerting the driver that there you know there's an impending collision and you know that was the mid 90s and it's now early 2020s and i've got my first vehicle that has it in it and so you know you you just think about that you know over the course of 20 plus years you know something that seemed like it was on the verge and so, so sometimes i think we we expect technology to advance faster than what what it's capable of doing, whether it's from a logistic or a practical standpoint, you know that's I think that's one of the things to keep in mind is you know there's a lot of things out there that can help, but it takes time for them to to get moving and, and get into into vehicles in a way that can help. I think the other thing is that you know when we look at drivers and we look at driving, in general, most drivers want to drive safe and you know their goal is to get safely to their destination. You've got a differences in risk profiles that people are willing to accept you know how, how close to the line are you willing to get and when we start thinking about crashes we often from a research standpoint we always like to talk about the mean you know we look at differences in the mean you know the mean uh variability in lane keeping increased from 25 centimeters under this condition to 28. well is that meaningful well it could be but if we see that the tails are shifting. And that's that's where crashes occur. So when we when we start looking at, at behavior, we design roadways in general in the US to be very safe. Uh, there's often, uh, you know, the safety margins really help. Our vehicles are much safer than they were. I don't see hardly any vehicles stalled along the side of the roadways anymore. Uh, you know, when growing up, you drive down, it's like, oh, another broken down vehicle alongside the road. Um, those are very rare to see anymore. And so most of the errors are coming from, from human error on the part of the driver. And most of the problems that are getting us really in trouble are out on the fringe. You know, it's, it's the person who decides it's safe to text. And not only do they text, but they take their eyes off the road for 10 seconds. A lot changes in 10 seconds at 35 miles an hour, let alone 50 miles an hour or 70 miles an hour on the interstate. And I think we've got to continue to place focus on how do we pull those tails in because those tails are what caused the problem they have that influence on the mean, but they're also where the crashes are occurring. Uh, those individuals that make up that that group or that behavior are what we have to try to fix if we wanna reduce crashes, whether it's from drowsiness, distraction, drug use, you name it, you know, that's where it's occurring. And you know, from a research community standpoint, we've gotta keep focusing on not just how the mean is shifting, but what it's doing to the tails of our distribution. Because if I've got a solution that keeps the mean the same, but, you know, produces more outliers that are more likely to be involved in fatal crashes. That's a problem compared to an alternate solution that maybe shifts the mean a little bit more, but uh, keeps everything tight uh, in and and doesn't result in situations that are more likely to lead to crashes.
0: And certainly, Tim, that's a compelling conclusion to this discussion. It illustrates uh, how much work there is. Uh, for all of us in front of us as it, uh, as it relates to improving road safety. Um, it's been such an honor to have you join us in conversation today. Uh, many thanks for the research contributions of you and your team in the past and for those sure to come impacting road safety in the future. We hope you'll join us again on a future podcast. Thank you, Tony. And that wraps this episode of the Global Road Safety Podcast. Stay tuned for future guest announcements and drive safely. The Global Road Safety Podcast is sponsored by Smith System, the leader in crash avoidance driver safety training. Follow the Global Road Safety Podcast for new episodes coming soon.